Easter, the Easter story itself, to be honest, I can't help but confess something to you. I've always found the Easter story difficult. The agony, the sadness of it. I've never liked reading about the suffering and death of someone that I love so much. I've always found it excruciating. I've never been able to watch Mel Gibson's film, The Passion. I just couldn't bear to watch it. Perhaps I should. But every time I read this story, I can't help but shrink from it. The brutality of it, the hatred, the anger, still not really understanding, hoping that I wouldn't have been part of it myself if I'd been there, but knowing that I would have. (laughs) And as I imagine myself part of the crowd, as I journey with those disciples, especially in those last few days, I find myself wishing that Judas wouldn't go through with it. I find myself hoping that Jesus would indeed, on this occasion when I read it, call that legion of angels to rescue him. And I find myself, even at the point of his extremity on the cross where he's tempted to come down, I find myself wishing that Jesus would come down somehow and show them all to be the superhero that he is and was. I can never wait to get to the resurrection. To turn the page and find the relief of it, the victory of it, the freshness of the empty tomb and the angelic appearances. The women who witness it first. I love that they get that privilege. The disbelief and amazement of the disciples. The appearance of Jesus himself bursting into the room full of life and power. I love the resurrection, but I don't like the crucifixion. But of course, before the resurrection is the crucifixion. And without the crucifixion, there would be no need for the resurrection. Without the agony of death, no victory of life. (laughs) And of course, to skate over the crucifixion is to deny our own part in it. To deny the price that Jesus paid. The sacrifice that he made. His life for my life. For your life, for the salvation of the whole world. We need to understand it. We need to bear the responsibility of it and, of course, to get the victory that Jesus won from it. So, today I want to review three things. Why did Jesus have to die? And what did his death achieve? And what does it mean for us now? It's just an excuse to preach the gospel again. So that's what I want to do this morning. Let me just pray first of all. Jesus, we love you. And this is hard for us to read and to talk about because we know our part in this. Lord, you you died for my sin. And somehow, Lord, we want to face the reality of that all over again today and journey with you as we see what you've done and how you've done it, and why you've done it. Jesus, impact us again with the gospel. Impact us again with the freedom and the victory that it brings. For your sake, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, it's because of sin. 
everybody's sin, because as Paul tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, there are all kinds of definition of sin, but here's the simplest. Sin is what is wrong with the world. It's not the good, but it's the bad and the ugly of all that we see in the world around us, from the worst of social problems to the vilest of crimes and every incident of hatred and lust and selfishness. All these things are the reason why Jesus endured the total humiliation and the agony of the cross. You know, every time that whip came down, every insult that was hurled at him, every nail that went in, every mocking voice was sin in action. Sin illustrated and demonstrated until finally Jesus lifted up his voice and he cried, it is finished. And the sin and the death that came with it is why Jesus had to die. In Romans it says that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men. Death came to all men, not just physical death, but a kind of spiritual death, a living deadness, which comes from being separated from God because of sin. See, God is holy, and holy doesn't mix with sin. It's as far as death is to life and light is to darkness. They're separated from one another. But just as one man's sin brought death to the whole human race, Adam Another man, Jesus, who was without sin, brought life to all who would come to believe in his name. So how did this happen? What did Jesus' death appear, uh, uh, achieve? And I want to use a, a picture with you that Paul uses, and it's very similar to the tomb that Jesus entered. You see, Paul calls it a prison. He says that until we come to faith in Christ, the whole human race In Galatians 3.22, he says, is a prisoner of sin and that we are locked up. Literally, human beings are imprisoned by sin because we've all broken God's law. And worse still, this prison is on death row. And we're all condemned to death because of sin. So the first thing that Jesus had to deal with is sin. So Jesus came to deal with sin. A few years ago, more years than I would now care to admit, when I was training in law, I went with my boss to visit the cell of a man called John Canaan in Exeter Prison. And he'd been accused of murdering women around the Bristol area in the 1980s. And it was my first visit to a prison. I'd never been in a prison before. And it was a horrible experience It was just this experience of going through more and more doors and locks, narrower and narrower passages, deeper and deeper into the prison because he was a high security prison. He was right in the heart of the prison until finally we were locked in this windowless room with a a very evil man. And as the doors kept closing behind me, as we walked deeper and deeper into this prison, an irrational thought kept coming to me. What if they don't let us out? (laughs) What if they don't let me out again? I get right in here and I'm stuck in this place with this man and nobody will let me out. And there's just this fear 
of confinement, the impenetrable walls. Have you any idea how thick the walls are in Exeter Prison? But it was just this hopeless feeling of being locked up. So we, but we did our business with that man and then it was time to go. And to my relief, someone came and set us free. You know, the, the guard opens the door from that inner room and I'm relieved to say he continued to do so all the way out of that dismal place until finally we were out breathing fresh air. And just the relief of stepping out from that prison was amazing. But you know, I shouldn't have been worried. I shouldn't have been worried because I hadn't done anything wrong. I was innocent. But the murderer, as he proved to be, he, he then uh, he was convicted 35 years for killing three women. He stayed behind, locked up under lock and key. Jesus was completely innocent too. The Bible says that he never sinned, but he took the blame for the sins of the world. He was the scapegoat for our crimes against God. And it's going to be, it's like in going to the cross, he entered the cell of that murderer and he owned up to his crimes himself. And he said, blame me. It's my fault. So that when it was time to go and I was let out of that prison, but Jesus, he stayed there. He stayed there. He was the prisoner who wasn't set free. He was the one who took the blame. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus took our place literally in this way when he died and was buried in the tomb. And that by faith in him, we are justified when we should have stayed in the prison. And justified is a legal term, which means just as if I'd never done anything wrong. That's what the glory of the cross is. Jesus takes our place and it makes us as if we'd never done anything wrong. So that for believers... There is no longer any problem of sin between us and God. Paul writes this, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it also means that sin no longer needs to be a problem for anyone coming to God if we come by faith. Jesus has provided the solution for mankind and paid the price. But there's more. Because not only did Jesus deal with sin, he also dealt with the law. So he came secondly to deal with the law. As I said, justified is a legal term. And it's important that we understand this. Because Jesus couldn't have just dealt with our sin in isolation. He had to also deal with the law. Why? Because we'd have soon been in trouble again as soon as we stepped out of that prison. You see, if the prison is our sin, then the law is what puts us there. It's what puts us there. The law, you see, is simply God's moral standard of righteousness, his holy standard, which man has never been able to live up to. I mean, think about it right back at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Adam only had one law to keep. Don't touch that tree. Don't eat the fruit. But he was totally unable to keep it. I mean, how many of you know how hard it is to resist a sign that says, do not touch? You go around the National Trust properties and you want to touch just to see what happens. Or it says, don't touch wet paint, but you've got to just make sure that it's wet because it could be an old sign. Or what about that one, don't walk on the grass? Well, what happens if I do? There's just something about being told don't that makes us want to try. 
impossible to keep the law. The Old Testament shows us that Israel couldn't keep God's laws, not even the Ten Commandments. And then when Jesus came along, he showed us that the righteous standards of the law were even higher than anyone thought. So in Matthew chapter 5, it says, you talk about murder, but actually hate is the same thing. He says, you talk about adultery, but lust is the same thing, and so on. Showing us that the law is more than just the letter. It's also the spirit of the law that counts. We have all sinned. We've all been caught out by this. Sometimes I can feel, well, I've never broken any of the Ten Commandments, so I'm okay. Oh, really? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's impossible for us to obey the law. It's a curse to us. It condemns us. Calvin says it drives us to despair. You see, the law shows up our failures and our shortcomings and makes us conscious of sin. That's what Romans says. It's like there's this constant finger that points at us. It's called the finger of the law. It's like the teacher's red pen. And it says, ah, you failed there. You failed there. You missed the mark there. You missed the mark there and there and there. And if your schoolwork was anything like mine, it's filled with the wrong kinds of crosses. You know, not the cross we're talking about today. It's filled with all of my mistakes, all the red pen marks. That's what the law does. It shows you where everything is wrong in your life. So not only did God have to deal with our sin, but the law that revealed it and constantly pointed it out. Because if God hadn't dealt with this, then presumably... Jesus would have had to have died every time a believer sinned. He'd have to die time and time again. Let me just take you back to that picture of the prison. Imagine if I had visited, when I visited that murderer in Exeter prison, I had decided in a moment of madness that I wanted to take his place. Somehow, I managed to convince the prisoner that I would take the rap for his crimes. Supposingly, then, we'd managed through some cunning disguise to get him out through all those locked doors as if he was me. Having done all that, do you think it would have worked? We've got him out. He's on the streets. He's breathing that fresh air. No, because what do you think would have happened as soon as the police would have seen him back on the street? They would have arrested him. Why? Because despite my obvious mental imbalance in letting him out in the first place, the law would not have been satisfied. I could have protested as much as I liked, but he was still guilty and he had to pay for his crimes. You see, the law has to be satisfied if we are going to go free. And so Jesus came, Galatians says, to redeem or to free us from the curse of the law. And he did this by living up to the full requirements of the law, even laying down his life and paying the ultimate price. So in Philippians, it says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, the law was never the solution. It just exposed the problem. God himself provided the solution. He sent Jesus, who was completely without sin, to take our place. And when Jesus took our place in that prison cell of sin and then died, death could not hold him. Why? The law couldn't condemn him. He was an innocent man, so he rose from the dead. 
He couldn't help it. Death could not contain him. It had no hold over him. There was nothing in him that could keep him there. And so, as we sang, the ground began to shake and the stone was rolled away. But what does this mean for us regarding the law today? Does the law have no effect or relevance? Yes, we still have a moral duty to follow it and obey its wisdom and relevance. And one day we'll all be judged by it. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses, which literally means forgive us our law breaking. But the good news is, is that as Christians, we're no longer condemned by it because Jesus has satisfied all of its requirements on our behalf, which is why when it co- we become Christians, we're freed from guilt and condemnation and the finger of the law, which accuses us. Imagine that. We are set free from that condemnation and that finger of the law. So what have we seen? Jesus' death dealt with sin. It dealt with law. But there's still something or someone else that needs dealing with. And that's Satan. He needs dealing with. Jesus then came to deal with Satan also on the cross. And John tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He says that he came to disarm him in all his power and authority over mankind so that the prince of this world would be driven out. See, Jesus needed to do this because when Adam sinned all that time ago, back at the beginning of creation, what happened spiritually is that he joined Satan's rebellion against God, putting himself and the whole human race under the dominion or rule of Satan. So what you've got to understand is there is no middle ground for us. There is no one camp. It's either one camp or the other. It's either dark or light. It's God or Satan. There's no fence to sit on. There isn't. It just doesn't exist. It's darkness or light, and it's that straightforward. You're either in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. So Jesus had to deal with Satan by the cross. As Paul says, I just want to read this because it it reviews nicely what we've already seen because this verse has the gospel in a nutshell. It's in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. Paul writes this. He says, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the written code, the law, with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is what it means when we say that the cross is our means of salvation. It's the place where Jesus triumphed over sin, the law, and the devil. When he died and then he rose from the dead. But the devil isn't very happy about it. And he's still around causing all kinds of trouble, you may have noticed. Let's just talk about him for a moment. I mean, in that prison picture, who is he? He's not the jailer of our prison. Let me just be clear about that. He's not the judge, but he's the one who accuses and he points the finger. He has several names, but this name accuser or adversary best describes his function. He accuses and he opposes. 
So he says things like, I saw what you did. Who do you think you are? You call yourself a Christian. How can you stand before God? How can you stand before these people? I know what you're really like. Does it sound familiar? He comes right against our identity as children of God. And he says, you're nothing. And he accuses us. And this is different to the finger of the law that I just described because the law just shows up where we've gone wrong and it leads us to conviction so that we can get right with God. No, the accuser not only points out what we've done wrong, he then leads us to think that we should have been able to live up to it. And that's what's wrong. And so he leads he leads us into this place where we're trying to live up to God's standard and we fail and we fail and we fail and then that leads to condemnation. But how can he do this if there is nothing for him to accuse or oppose? You know, if sin has been dealt with, if the law that dogged us has been fulfilled. So this is why it's so important for us to understand what Jesus has done. Because the cross is our legitimate grounds for freedom. Does Satan still accuse? Yes. Does he still oppose us? Absolutely. But by the cross, Revelation says, the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God, day and night has been hurled down. And so Paul writes, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is praying for us. Isn't that wonderful? Satan has been held down. And Jesus has been lifted up to the right hand of God. He has triumphed over the devil and through his death and his resurrection has destroyed Satan's authority and disarmed his power. And Satan's days are numbered. Hallelujah. So what does this mean for us? Well, now we get to talk about the resurrection. Because this is where we get to walk out of prison. No more death row, but a new beginning and freedom of a new life. Easter is all about prison break. The reason for our imprisonment has been removed. Not only has our sentence been fulfilled, even the prison that confined us has been destroyed. As surely as the stone was rolled away from Jesus' tomb, the prison doors have been blasted open for each of us to walk out of death and into life. You see, the law has been satisfied and there is now no condemnation for anyone who claims Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. No Christian has to live under Satan's authority. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so you're not in Satan's domain because you're born into another. Paul says this, he says, for he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he's brought us in to the kingdom of the son that he loves. There is no more darkness of death. There's no more darkness of the tomb. God has rescued us and brought us into his kingdom free of charge because Jesus paid for it with his life. 
And this happens the very instant that we turn away from our sin and turn to Christ and acknowledge him as our Lord and Savior. Therefore, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. The new has come, which means that we get to live on the resurrection side of the cross and all of the good that Jesus has won for us. We must, yes, we must remember the cross and the price Jesus paid, but we don't live on the dark side. We too are raised with him. So where are you living today? Because you see, the accuser doesn't want you to live without condemnation. I've just said the prison has been broken. The law has been dealt with. But Satan will try to create another prison around us. A prison of condemnation. So that many of us are fooled into thinking that that's what we deserve. But I want to say to you that there is no condemnation. Rather a commendation for every believer. God says from heaven, you are my beloved son or daughter. I'm well pleased. Live again. So this is a life and death message today. And if you're not a believer, then I want you to, I want to invite you to come out of prison today. Now if I went to any of the prisons, if I went to Winston Green, I said, hey guys, who wants to come out of prison today? They'd have been pushing at the door to get out, you know? But we're in a spiritual prison without Jesus, and the invitation is the same. It's prison break day. Get off death row. Jesus is offering you the gift of a new life. The stone has been rolled away. The tomb is empty. This Easter can be your prison break. Jesus came to set those that were in prison free. He says, that's why the spirit of the Lord is on me, to set captives free. Or maybe you are a believer already, but you know that there are areas of your life where you're still imprisoned. It feels like there's areas of uh, restriction, areas of chains that bind us. Maybe there's an inner prison, and sometimes it seems like things happen in stages. We come out of those locked doors one at a time. I just want to declare freedom of you and for locks to break wherever you are, that Jesus has set you free. He's broken your prison, and you no longer need to be in that place. There is no condemnation. And the prison door is open for any one of us to walk out from. Amen.